I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A teenage girl who shoots to the top. This isn't some upstart little kid that's just getting lucky. This is a true marksman. An act of Arctic bravery. You would have to be either insane or extraordinarily desperate to make this journey. And a lifelong criminal's haunting demise. Outside, he's a nobody. Inside, he's a king. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Los Angeles, California. Set upon 4,300 acres, the city's Griffith Park is one of the largest in the country. And amidst this verdant scenery is another remarkable attraction, the Autry National Center. Established by Hollywood cowboy Gene Autry, the museum salutes the Wild West with a collection that includes a restored 1850s stagecoach a gambling device called the Wheel of Fortune, and a pair of imposing 19th-century totem poles. But among these frontier artifacts is a decidedly lethal object that played a role in a surprisingly sweet tale. This object is gold-plated steel. It is delicately engraved and has mother-of-pearl grips. According to curator Jeffrey Richardson, this ornate curio speaks to a tough folk hero whose career sprang from an unlikely romance. It truly represents one of the great courtships in the history of the American West. So who owned this pistol? And how is it linked to a legendary love story that sparked the career of America's first female superstar? Western Ohio, 1868. Eight-year-old Phoebe Ann Moses is eking out a hard Scrabble wilderness life with her widowed mother and six siblings. 
they really struggled to eat each day. So young Phoebe takes matters into her own hands. The family had a a rifle, so she picked up the gun and she went out hunting. As Phoebe traipses through the woods, she spies a squirrel, takes aim, and pulls the trigger. Amazingly, she was successful. And it's soon apparent that Phoebe's skill is no beginner's luck. She was so successful in her hunting that she was able to sell animals to local stores and restaurants. By 1875, 15-year-old Phoebe has a reputation across the region as an uncanny sure shot. So when she hears about a shooting match with a $50 first prize, she doesn't hesitate to enter. Not even when she learns the competition is the famous touring marksman, Frank Butler. Frank Butler would travel around the country doing shooting exhibitions. And when he arrived in a different town, he would put up a bet that he would be able to outshoot anyone in that particular community. Yet experience fails to prepare him for his fresh-faced challenger. Really, to Frank's utter amazement, the competition was a 15-year-old young girl. The match's rules are simple. The two will take turns shooting clay pigeons. The first one to miss loses. It's widely assumed it will be Phoebe. There were very few people who thought she could best this great traveling marksman. As soon as the competition begins, Frank learns that he wildly underestimated his opponent. Every shot that Frank Butler was able to do, she was able to match. He's starting to realize this isn't some upstart little kid that's just getting lucky, that this is a true marksman. But after two dozen rounds, things take a fateful turn. The 25th shot, Frank Butler missed. On her 25th shot, Phoebe Ann Moses destroyed the target. Defying all expectations, the brilliant young markswoman wins the match and the admiration of her opponent. I imagine Frank Butler had to know that she was something special. The competitors then strike up a friendship that blossoms into romance. And on August 23rd, 1876, after a whirlwind courtship, the couple is married. As Mrs. Frank Butler, Phoebe gladly hangs up her rifle. For several years, Phoebe basically works as an assistant for Frank Butler. But it seems fate has Phoebe in its crosshairs. On May 1st, 1882, Frank's stage partner suddenly falls ill, and he scrambles to find a last-minute replacement. Frank realizes there's really only one person that can fill his shoes, and that's his wife. Phoebe agrees to stand in, but adopts a new name for her onstage persona. By combining her middle name, Anne, with what is reportedly an old family surname, Annie Oakley is born. This very young, beautiful, feminine woman on stage had such an impact on audiences that almost immediately Frank Butler knew that Annie Oakley would be the star of the show. As her star rises, Annie's talent catches the eye of renowned cowboy and showman William Buffalo Bill Cody, who invites her to join his Wild West extravaganza. 
And that ultimately gave her the exposure that made her the most successful, the most popular woman in America. Offstage, Annie Oakley and Frank Butler remain devoted companions. And in 1892, as a tribute to his wife, Frank gives her a specially crafted pistol, now part of the Autry's permanent collection. The gun is truly a piece of art and worthy of someone of Annie Oakley's stature. The Butler's romance endures for half a century. Then, in November of 1926, Annie Oakley dies at the age of 66. 18 days later, Frank Butler also passes away. They truly could not live without one another. Today, this pistol, housed at the Autry National Center in Los Angeles, is a sentimental symbol of one of history's most celebrated sharpshooting couples. Fairbanks, Alaska. This city of 30,000 people lies just 120 miles south of the Arctic Circle. And it's home to an institution that pays homage to the region's alpine ridges, glaciers, and skies. The University of Alaska Museum of the North. Inside are more than 1.4 million relics from Alaska's frontier past, ranging from ancient ivory carvings to a display of pure gold and a 36,000-year-old mummified steppe bison named Blue Babe. But one bizarre-looking object is neither animal nor mineral. This artifact is almost lacy in appearance. It is very light when you hold it. It almost looks like a piece of coral. As the museum's media coordinator, Teresa Bacher, can attest, this lichen points to a toxic tale of unbridled human exploitation. It was connected to one of the most disturbing projects ever proposed by the U.S. government. What secrets does this plant specimen hold about an alarming atomic age experiment? August 1958. Point Hope, Alaska. Much of the landscape of the nation's newest state remains uncharted. But one summer day, a member of the native Inupiat tribe named Daniel Lisborne is hunting caribou when he spots something unusual. Several men scattered along the shoreline taking measurements. Daniel asks the men, what, what are you doing? And they say they're there with the government and that they're surveying the area. Lisborne reports this information to the local Inupiat Council. They all sort of surmise that maybe they're making maps, which would be a good thing. But when a geographer from the Atomic Energy Commission named Don Foote arrives in Point Hope, he offers a different explanation. Foote explains the government wants to build a giant port 30 miles southeast of their village for shipping coal and oil deposits south to the mainland. He then discloses that this massive undertaking named Project Chariot will employ an earth-shattering tool never used before in construction, nuclear bombs. Instead of having to dig and, and slog their way through the permafrost and the, and the tundra, the great plan was to use nuclear devices to do the work for people. The people of Point Hope are horrified. But Don assures them that the project will build the local economy and be safe. Don stakes his personal reputation on this. He says, if I find anything that shows me that this will not be a good thing for your community, it's not going to happen. 
To gain the Inupiat's trust, Foot immerses himself in their culture. One day, while hunting caribou with Daniel Lisborne, Don notices the animals grazing very near the proposed blast site, and he begins to fear that nuclear fallout from Project Chariot could poison this critical food source. They don't have grocery stores that they can go to to get food. They rely on the caribou. In a report to the Atomic Energy Commission, Don recommends that Project Chariot be scrapped. But it seems the government is determined to proceed. About a year later, Don is devastated to find out that his recommendation was completely ignored. Don is perplexed by the commission's motives. Why would they be willing to expose this community to such a grave risk? As he digs further, he discovers Project Chariot's true intent, to study firsthand the effect of radioactive fallout on people. The plan is to detonate six nuclear bombs in a blast 14 times more powerful than Hiroshima, and then monitor its impact on the remote population for years to come. Don is horrified. What will it take to protect the people of Point Hope from this nuclear nightmare? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's 1958 in Point Hope, Alaska. While investigating the potential use of nuclear explosives in a massive construction effort, Government geographer Don Foote finds they will devastate the hunting grounds of the native Inupiat people. 
But when the government summarily dismisses the report, Foote realizes he must defend the people he's come to know. So how will he protect these locals from this terrible fallout? Don realizes he must turn public opinion against the government and sets out to find unassailable scientific proof that the project will be deadly. So he teams up with an environmental scientist named Bill Pruitt, who shares an astonishing find. This community already has the highest amounts of radiation in the world. How can this remote region suffer from fallout when the nearest nuclear tests were conducted thousands of miles away in New Mexico? Bill believes that the answer might actually lie in the colorful plant that is found all over the tundra called lichen. Bill explains that lichen, like this sample at the Museum of the North, is a staple of the caribou diet. And unlike typical plants, it feeds on dust in the air, including particles that could be contaminated by nuclear fallout. Acting on a hunch, Bill examines recent studies of lichen samples. He then compares them to studies of specimens preserved before 1945, the year of the first atomic blast in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And what they uncover confirms their worst fears. They discover that after that first test, there is a spike in contamination in the specimens. So what this proves is that the fallout from tests in Nevada and, and other locations have actually made it all the way to this area just by being carried on the wind. And that fallout worked its way up the food chain to the people of Point Hope. The pair determined that if blasts were to occur in their own backyard, this delicate ecosystem would be eviscerated. Don and Bill published their findings on the devastating environmental impact of radiation. The blowback is swift. The public rallies around the people of Point Hope, forcing the government to rein in Project Chariot. And today, these lichens on display at the University of Alaska Museum of the North stand as a reminder of the dogged determination it took to stave off the nuclear destruction of an Alaskan community. Deer Lodge, Montana. For over 140 years, the city's most prominent institution has been the Montana State Prison. Built in 1881, it once housed the outlaws of the Old West. But when a new facility was constructed in 1977, this building was transformed into a museum. Here, visitors are offered a glimpse into the lives of prisoners past, through artifacts like the guns wielded by wardens, inmate-crafted weapons, and a book designed to conceal cigarettes. But there are two items connected to a horrific event that to this day reverberates through these prison halls. These are leather. They're about 20 pounds, and they have corroding cement on them. According to tour guide Jamie Davius Owens, these shoes are linked to a convict who served more than a life sentence. These were once worn by an inmate whose insane drive for glory and revenge have survived from beyond the grave. Who donned these unorthodox shoes? And how is he linked to the most fateful day in the prison's history? Fall 2003, the Old State Prison Museum. While touring the halls of this building, a couple is struck by a wicked notion. 
they decide they want to spend the night in the cell blocks. They're imagining this lights-out lifestyle of convicts. Wouldn't that be fun? The pair sneaks off from the group and begins to explore this maze of a museum. Exhilarated by their illicit escapade, they enter into an empty cell. But soon, their excitement turns to terror. They both hear the growling of men, very low voices. But they can't identify the source of the sound. Then, it seems as if they're being attacked. The man finds himself being choked and shoved up against this wall. He manages to escape the cell, and the terrified couple flees. Museum workers come to their aid. And when they share their harrowing tale, it seems they're not alone. Other visitors and employees claim to have heard menacing voices, phantom footsteps, and the touch of an unseen hand. According to some, the hauntings can be traced to a notorious incident that took place some 50 years earlier. Summer, 1958, Montana State Prison. A 41-year-old career criminal named Jerry Miles is locked up after robbing a local hardware store. After 25 years in and out of jail, Jerry knows he's landed in the perfect penitentiary. The old state prison had this very interesting system. It's state-sanctioned where they would actually hire convicts to run the various shops. Within months of arriving, Jerry becomes a shop boss and is supervising fellow convicts. He revels in his newfound power. This is his dream come true. He really makes his space into kind of an after-hours club. And, of course, it's complete with drugs and alcohol. So he's really carved a good life out for himself. Outside, he's a nobody. Inside, he's a king. But Jerry's reign is about to come under threat. In October 1958, a new warden and deputy warden are hired. Floyd Powell and Ted Roth. When Floyd Powell comes in... He says, this is a little bit too much power in the hands of these convicts. His first order of business is to replace shop bosses with guards and civilians. This is Jerry Miles' worst nightmare. An outraged Miles confronts Deputy Roth. And when his pleas are rebuffed, he threatens the warden. Of course, Ted doesn't take too kindly to this and immediately orders Jerry into a month of isolation. As the story goes, Miles is forced to wear these shoes with cement soles, now on display at the Old State Prison Museum, as a form of punishment. In isolation, Jerry's fury builds, and he begins to concoct a plan for revenge. When he returns to the general population, he enlists the help of a 19-year-old convicted murderer named Lee Smart. On April 16, 1959, the pair attack a guard and manage to steal a rifle. Jerry and Lee march directly into the office of Deputy Warden Ted Roth. Lee draws the weapon, shoots, and kills Deputy Roth. Then the two men incite a full-scale riot, taking 26 prisoners and guards hostage, including Chief Warden Powell. By the next morning, the National Guard has surrounded the prison. But Jerry is determined to continue his reign. 
Jerry loves the fame and the media attention. He now has the attention of the National Guard, national news. After a tense 36 hours, the authorities storm the prison with bazookas and tear gas. Jerry knows that his reign of terror is about to come to a close. Jerry realizes that his rifles are no match for military weapons and military tactics. So he turns his weapons on Lee Smart, he kills his accomplice, and then he kills himself. Order is eventually restored, and the prison operates under much tighter controls until it's shut down in 1979. Shortly after, it reopens as a tourist attraction. Today, many believe the invisible forces and the sounds of heavy footsteps are the work of the imprisoned spirit of a cement-shoed Jerry Miles. Jerry's always wanted control over this prison, and he's still here trying to do that. And these shoes, now on display at the Old State Prison Museum, serve as a chilling reminder of one determined criminal's quest for power and the spirit who, some say, still walks these halls. Washington, D.C. With over 2,000 restaurants tucked into a seven-mile area, this city of the power hungry is also home to the power lunch. And at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, even the pickiest eaters can find something to chew on. Here, an exhibit celebrating the modernization of food features the kitchen of beloved chef Julia Child, the first microwave oven designed for the home, and the once ubiquitous Swanson TV dinner tray. Amid this homage to the edible is an item worthy of toasting. It has a white label, it is made of glass, it has a bit of cork. Though it looks like an ordinary bottle, Curator Paula Johnson asserts that it tells an underdog tale of an unlikely upstart who revolutionized global tastes. It really sort of sent shockwaves through the international wine scene. How did this bottle transform American winemaking from cottage enterprise to a multi-billion dollar industry? 1969, Napa Valley, California. Former college instructor and Chicago native Warren Vinyarski has recently uprooted his young family to fulfill a driving ambition. He had this dream of being a winemaker, so Warren bought this acreage, he called it Stag Sleep Wine Cellars, and proceeded then to transform it. The burgeoning winemaker thinks he's found the ideal location to produce sophisticated European-style reds. But not everyone is convinced. The reputation of California wine was really bulk wines, sweet wines, inexpensive, high-alcohol wine. But Vinyarski is undeterred. Warren planted his vineyards and tended to the vines. He really put his sweat into making this happen. Finally, in September of 1973, Vinyarski harvests 32 tons of grapes, his first commercial yield and hauls them in for fermentation. For centuries, traditional winemakers have relied on wooden tanks for this task, but Vinyarski sees an opportunity to improve the process by developing cutting-edge, temperature-controlled metal containers for the job. 
With the stainless steel fermentation, he was able to control the winemaking process in a way that they hadn't been able to before. When fermentation is complete, Vinyarski pours the wine into large oak barrels and leaves it to age. 18 months later, the 1973 Stag's Leap Cabernet Sauvignon is finally ready for market. For Vinyarski, the vintage is everything he believed it could be. Classic, complex, and delicious. Yet despite his faith in the product, he struggles to sell it. Nobody had heard of this label before. Nobody really knew Warren Vinyarski. It was a struggle. But little does Vinyarski know, he's about to encounter the opportunity of a lifetime. May 1976, Paris. An enterprising wine merchant named Stephen Spurrier is struck by the quality of wines emerging from California's Napa Valley. So he dreams up a daring publicity stunt. He had decided to hold an event that would pit the best of French wines against the new California wines. For most wine enthusiasts, the idea that any vintage, especially one from America, could top a French one is absurd. The reputation of French wine was, of course, the best, the best in the world, the height. Regardless of the outcome, Spurrier is convinced the sensational event will be good for business. Among the California wines he chooses is the Stag's Leap 1973 Cabernet Sauvignon. On May 24th, he assembles an impressive panel of French judges for a blind taste test. They were all experts, sommeliers, restaurateurs. These were people in France who knew wine. Spurrier instructs the judges to evaluate the 10 reds and assign each a point value. The tasting, of course, was blind, so the judges didn't know which one they were tasting. They proceeded very deliberately, very carefully. But as the afternoon unfolds, the experts grow increasingly flustered. Their refined palates can't discern the California wines from the French. What they didn't expect was the level of refinement. When the scores are tallied, the judges are floored. Warren Vinyarski's 73 Cabernet Sauvignon has taken first place. Everybody was shocked. It was unheard of that a California Cabernet Sauvignon had placed first above the best of France. That was huge. Warren Vinyarski's thrilled by the victory. Sales of Stag's Leap surge, and the winemaking world takes notice. This really became kind of a watershed moment. The world saw that there is beautiful, fine wine that is being produced in California and in America. Over time, the once humble California wine industry transforms into a multi-billion dollar business, and winemakers around the world embrace Vinyarski's cutting-edge techniques. And today, a bottle of this winning Cabernet Sauvignon stored in the vaults of the National Museum of American History pays tribute to the vintage that put California winemaking on the map. Alamogordo, New Mexico. This remote desert community is home to the otherworldly dunes of White Sands National Monument. But on the edge of town stands an institution documenting man's quest to reach another alien landscape, the New Mexico Museum of Space History. 
Here, visitors can see an AJ-10 Delta rocket engine, an astronaut's portable life support system, and a meteor-detecting satellite. But according to the museum's executive director, Christopher Orwall, one device was intended to never leave the ground. The artifact is about 30 feet long, about 10 feet wide, and about 7 feet tall. It's red, it's white, it's black. The person who piloted this apparatus led some of the most groundbreaking and life-threatening experiments of the 20th century. This is a man who repeatedly put his life on the line to help save the lives of others. So who drove this dangerous contraption? And how did it revolutionize the way Americans travel? December 1947, Muroc Army Airfield, California. Medical officer and biophysicist John Paul Stapp is staring down a high-octane challenge, saving the lives of American jet pilots. New cutting-edge military aircraft are capable of traveling at upwards of 650 miles per hour. But if a pilot is forced to eject mid-air at that speed, the rapid force of deceleration ravages their body. The common belief at the time is that the human body could not endure more than 18 Gs of force and that ejections at speeds above 600 miles an hour would be fatal. Stapp suspects that with the proper equipment, pilots actually can withstand this force. So he and his team set about developing cutting-edge harnesses that will better brace pilots during ejection. To put their design to the test, they build a rocket-powered sled equipped with hydraulic brakes designed to run along a track. So it can accelerate and then decelerate at very high speed. After months of preparation, the team employs a dummy in initial trials. While results seem promising, the test conditions are less than ideal. They needed to show what the results were of testing on the human body. So later that year, Stapp makes a stunning announcement. He was going to be putting himself on the sled to be the test dummy. While colleagues try to convince their leader to let someone else play a human guinea pig, Stapp is steadfast. He wanted to ride it first before he asked somebody else to do it. If anything went wrong, the results could be fatal. Stapp dons the protective harness, and his team watches anxiously. They ignite the rocket engines, sending their leader zooming down the track. Then abruptly engage the brakes. To the team's great relief, Stapp has survived the sudden impact. And he climbed off the, the sled unscathed and ready to do it again. Tests reveal that Stapp endured a stunning 18 Gs of force, once thought to be the lethal limit. But the daredevil is not satisfied. To truly replicate the conditions of ejecting from a jet, he must subject himself to even greater speeds and risks and he'll need a more powerful vehicle to do it. So engineers at New Mexico's Holloman Air Force Base set about constructing a more powerful sled. The new model, on display at the New Mexico Museum of Space History, is dubbed Sonic Wind No. 1. It can reach the unprecedented speed of 650 miles an hour and decelerate to a dead stop in just over a second. Even if the harnesses hold up, no one knows whether the human body can withstand this potentially organ-crushing force. They thought that they might have a casualty, potential death, on the test track. On the afternoon of December 10th, 
the countdown begins. When it reaches zero, the sled's nine rockets ignite. Stapp zooms down the track at a record-breaking 632 miles an hour. He was accelerated to a speed that exceeds that of a bullet coming out of a gun. Just a moment later, the hydraulic brakes engage, and the sled instantly screams to a halt. When the smoke finally clears, colleagues race to the human crash test dummy. The medics expected that there might be some grave injuries coming out of this sled run. Yet it seems Stapp and the restraint system were indeed up to the test. Scientists later determined that he endured a staggering 40 Gs of force. The forces were so tremendous that he had to keep his eyes closed very tightly to keep his eyeballs essentially in his head. Stapp's remarkable test proves supersonic jet pilots can eject safely. And soon, his team's restraint designs are implemented in military and civilian aircraft. It's not long before his research crosses over to the auto industry. In the 1960s, he helps perfect the three-point passenger safety belt and successfully leads the charge to make them mandatory in all U.S. cars. For anyone who gets around on planes, trains, and automobiles, the work of John Paul Stapp continues to resonate. And this rocket-powered sled at the New Mexico Museum of Space History reflects the courage of a researcher always willing to take the driver's seat. Hanover, New Hampshire. This small town is consistently ranked as one of the best places to live in America. It's also home to a world-class institution of higher learning, Dartmouth College. And on this Ivy League campus stands an invaluable repository, the Rauner Special Collections Library. The historic archive includes a bust of statesman and Dartmouth alum Daniel Webster, a 19th century sewing machine, and an illuminated edition of the complete works of Geoffrey Chaucer. But among these perfectly preserved items is a simple object that looks a bit worse for wear. This artifact is about 20 inches tall, 14 inches wide, and about an inch thick. It's got a green canvas-type cover, and it's filled with fountain pen ink handwriting. This frayed volume survived an awe-inspiring journey that's compared to traveling to hell and back. You could live a thousand lifetimes and not struggle as much as these men did. To whom did this journal belong? And what hellish, harrowing ordeal did its owner endure? December 1914. The Southern Atlantic. On board the Endurance, famed British explorer Ernest Shackleton is on an epic mission. To be the first to explore the last uncharted continent, Antarctica. Shackleton and his 27 men were hugely excited about this adventure. The goal is to sail as far south as Vassal Bay, then traverse the frozen 1,800-mile interior by sled. Yet Shackleton knows that Antarctica's punishing climate threatens even the best laid plans. The extreme weather conditions are extraordinary. High winds, blizzards, ice, plus the coldest temperatures on Earth. And the hardships strike long before Shackleton and his men reach the Antarctic Circle. Within weeks, ice drifts surround the endurance. By February, it's frozen in place. 
unable to budge. Getting trapped in the ice was a disaster. But over time, the pressure of the crushing ice pack mounts. The ship started to break up and go down. Shackleton gave the order to abandon ship. The entire crew manages to escape the decimated ship with their lives, some provisions, and three lifeboats. Now the beleaguered crew must determine how to survive on the open ice. Apart from the cold and the possibility of falling into the water, the men were terrified of starving to death. Camped on the drifts, the men subsist on seal blubber and their dwindling supply of rations. The job of meeting them out falls to the crew storekeeper, 37-year-old Thomas Ord Lees. Ord Lees wrote that no housewife had ever had such a job making so little food go so far. He records these musings in this journal, which now resides in the Rawner Special Collection. The expedition has pushed Shackleton and his ice-bound crew to their outermost limits. But then the elements unleash their fiercest test yet. The ice began to break up and things took a turn for the worse. With the very surface beneath their feet giving way, Shackleton announces a bold plan. Shackleton gave the order to load the lifeboats with everything they could. The strategy is to skirt around the pack ice to open water, then row like mad to land. After six torturous days and nights, Shackleton and his men wash up on a place called Elephant Island. Once again on solid ground, their ordeal is far from over. Elephant Island was about 100 miles north of Antarctica completely uninhabited by humans. And with dwindling supplies, the threat of starvation still looms large. So, five days later, Shackleton devises one final bid for rescue. He tells the men he will sail a lifeboat 800 miles across open waters to South Georgia Island in search of help. You would have to be either insane or extraordinarily desperate to make this journey. On April 24th, Shackleton and five others bid farewell to the crew and shove off. As they launched the boat, the swell of the sea was enormous. For four months, the men huddled together at the makeshift camp, surviving on scraps and biding their time. But on the morning of August 30th, the tide finally turns one of the crew spots a small ship on the horizon. Unbelievably, this was Shackleton on a small tugboat returning to save them. After leading 27 men to the ends of the earth, Shackleton brings each and every one of them home. The tale of this expedition has become one of the greatest survival stories that the world has ever known. And here at the Rawner Special Collection, this journal kept by crewman Thomas Ord Lees, which charts the Odyssey's extraordinary course, speaks to the indomitable will of the human spirit. From a sharpshooting sensation to a shocking scientific plot, a haunted prison to a prize-winning wine. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. Thank you. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.